This is Limit Up, the show where we explore markets, strategies, and trading psychology so that you can take your trading to the next level. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Limit Up podcast. Presented by Top Step Trader, I'm Jack Pelzer, and I'm joined by Dan. Dan, how you doing? Jack, I'm good. How are you? You sound a lot better this week. I, uh, man, I was just really sick last week and it's been a while since I've been like that and it is not fun. Well, I'm glad you're feeling better. I can't, it's awful getting sick, especially at the end of summer. You still want to enjoy a little bit of sun. I know it's a changing of the weather, man. It just uh, ruins everything. But, um, yeah. So, uh, one thing that is going to be great is that a few weeks ago we, uh, talked to, an old friend of mine, uh, Adam Boostrom, who we used to trade together at uh, Chopper and DRW, and he was a really great trader there. And he's since gone on to uh, write a novel and do some other things in the startup world. But uh, it was really interesting to hear what he, how he approached the trade because he does it in a different way. And also, uh, I got to give the preamble that while we were recording that interview... It was that day a few weeks ago. Was it on a Wednesday or Thursday where... Uh, I think it was a Wednesday or Thursday. I can't remember. NASDAQ was down like 6.5% at the lows. Um, and I was I was running risk manager that day. And so I, uh, I'm i looking forward to giving this interview a listen. I think I was there for the first five minutes and then the last five minutes. Well, we say this just so you're not confused when Dan interjects a few times that he's not just <laughs> you know sitting there twiddling his thumbs <laughs> right <laughs> yeah well that was a tough day um and right now we're kind of we're just waiting for the fomc minutes to come out right now so who knows what sort of uh day you might have now but you're not doing the risk managing today right no today i am just doing my own stuff so i am uh i'm enjoying these markets right now um I'm hopeful for a nice little end of day move going into the close um, after the number comes out, which is probably going to be unchanged. Um, but we know with Jerome Powell, when he starts talking, you know, you got to really pay attention to what he has to say. And people tend to react to that. He can just change one word. Everyone's hanging on every word from uh, Jay Powell. I mean, it is incredible how much people can read into a single, uh, you know, strengthening verse getting stronger or something like that. And that right. will completely disrupt the bond market. It's amazing. Like I listen to those words to me. They're, I'm like, oh, okay, nothing's really changed. And then all of a sudden the market goes nuts and I read into a little bit. I'm like, oh man, this is why I'm not an economist and I'm just a trader. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Fed Fed minutes were, uh, when we were trading, were not Fed minutes, FOMC statement, was one of the few uh, times that we absolutely had to be flat. Yes, especially a couple of years. Well, especially when you were trading too, when you were, because this was post the the crash and that statement was volatility. And if you're trading treasuries, which you were a treasuries guy, your spreads, right? Yeah. And it creates insane volatility. I remember before I left the prop firm, we could not wait for them to start raising rates again, thinking it was going to lead to that move. same exact volatility. Moving. And like the first one was, we had about a half hour of movement. And then from there, it just like tapered off. It was all factored in way ahead of time. Yeah. We don't dive into the story on the podcast, but part of the reason we absolutely had to be flat was that um, the owner of Chopper was a huge uh, 30-year bond trader. And uh, there was a point at which 
the uh, you know Treasury stopped the thirty-year bond. I was not trading at this point. This was before my time. But you, are you familiar with this story? Mm, a little bit. So basically, they just announced that they're no longer going to offer thirty-year Treasuries. I believe for some you know period of time, and the market went bonkers. And, oh, yeah. you know, you could be wiped out in a second. You know, imagine if you're, you know, short bonds in any size. And now it's like, well, no more. I, I couldn't imagine. I mean, that would send everything into a tizzy. Yeah. So we don't see as much of that anymore. But, um, yeah, FOMC, always interesting. Uh, Adam Bustrom, also interesting. So uh, why don't we just kick it over to this interview now? Because uh, I had a great time. It was great talking to someone that I know from uh, back in the day and, uh you know, I've moved on. We lived the glory bit. days, huh? Yeah, all those glory days between <laughs> 2009 and 2014. 2015, awesome. not glory days for me and I'm my I'm excited account. to listen to it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, anyway, I uh, hope you enjoyed the interview, and we'll be back afterwards for a few words. All right. We're joined today by a ghost of uh, my career past who uh, we've spent a lot of time together and have not talked to each other in probably four years five years yeah i mean i i don't know if you're counting <laughs> i'll eventually you know it's something i keep track of uh anyway our guest today is adam boostrom who uh for years was a very successful fixed income trader at our old employers which were uh chopper trading uh rip and uh drw so we brought Adam on today, too, because I feel like we talked to a lot of traders who are still in the trading or trading education business and um, are still kind of actively involved in it. And I just kind of wanted to talk to someone who had a successful career trading and how they looked at things without any, you know, not trying to sell stuff, but just you're not offering anything as far as trading necessarily anymore. Right, Adam? I mean, I still have friends and family ask me for trading advice all the time. But uh, no, I mean, I, I'm not working professionally in trading in any capacity. All right. Well, let's... That's the question? Yeah, just to start. So let's let's start with this uh, at the beginning. So Adam, how did you get into uh, trading at Chopper? Okay. I'm going to tell you the true unfiltered story. Please so do. So coming, coming out of U Chicago, uh, I applied to, I don't know, 80 jobs, 100 jobs, no one would interview me at all. I really wanted to work for Lehman Brothers, which is hilarious in hindsight and also true. And they said, no, thanks. We're not interested. And um, the only job I could get was working for uh, Breakwater Trading, which got acquired by Peak Six and then sort of dissolved. But it was a terrible job. It was a shit job working 12 hours overnight for $36,000 a year. And I was like, yeah, I got to take this or move back home with, to live with my parents. So let's do it. Um, and I didn't, like, I never, I didn't seek out trading deliberately. Like it was something I kind of fell into by process of default. Yeah, this is something that I can definitely identify with too. A lot of people from our generation, this is right around 2007 to 2009, where people, I, I, what was your major in college, Adam? Economics. So I, as was mine. And a lot of people wanted to be uh, management consultants or iBankers, but that was just at the time where all those jobs and internships uh, completely disappeared, in some cases like Lehman Brothers, spectacularly so. So you kind of go, what's adjacent and hiring? Because I did the same thing. You start applying to a few prop shops. They care less about necessarily 
your grades as much as kind of <laughs> what you can do on tests and whether Jack, you can. Jack, are you saying that we didn't have good grades? <laughs> I, I had decent grades. I didn't have yeah, Goldman Sachs grades. Guys. Yeah. You know, there's enough people with 3.9s at, I'm sure, you know, University of Chicago or. You'd be surprised. There is, UChicago is famous for no grade inflation. Like I made Dean's List every year, which is like top 25% or something with a 3.4. Like there were a lot of sub three people there. Like there are a lot of professors that were like, C is supposed to be average. I grade the curve <laughs> on a C. Yeah. But so, so you look into these and you're right. It starts out as um, I came in two years after you because you were already a chopper. So we'll get to that. But also a similar thing. I think I made $40,000 a year for <laughs> a crap job overnight. But um, yeah, so you guys made the migration. Were you hired by Jay and Nelly? Uh, no. Wait, you mean Brian and... Yeah, Brian oh, yeah, yeah. And Nelson. Yeah, 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 Brian Nelson. Yeah, yeah. No, um, I was... I came over with Brian Nelson from Breakwater to Chopper. But I, I was hired by someone else named Jay, um, who Noah would Noah Ginsburg would know if he were here. He could right on. Well, maybe I'll get throw, him on some sometime. Great, yeah, throw some great Jay stories in there. He was a a very just gruff, like "Go fuck yourself, do do this job for me, or else I'll, I'll fire you tomorrow." It was like I felt like I was uh, the Scheherazade from <laughs> the Arabian Nights. Literally, it was like every night. I got into work and he's like, if you fuck anything up tonight, I'll fire you tomorrow morning. And then, <laughs> and then, you know, I'd make it a day and then the next night it'd be the same thing. So I guess the thing to throw out there is a lot of these, I don't know how it is now. I presume they're still night guys, especially if you're trading something, we were all trading treasuries. I presume you were then too. And yeah. the markets, we traded a years. lot of stuff. We traded a lot of crude actually back then. Oh, that's, that kind of disappeared a little bit, didn't it? Well, at yeah, least when we went over to chopper. There's a real, you know how trading is. Like there was a real, um, it was the Arbob crack spread. I forget exactly, but like the derivatives of the oil, you, there was a real good trade there for a while. And so we did that. Yeah. So kind of the life of a night guy is just basically you're there overnight starting at about, you know, 5 p.m. on a Sunday night is when you start your week and you work 12 hours each of the days sitting around, usually doing nothing, but being, uh, punished spectacularly if you miss the, the flurries of activity that happen. So that that was really hard for me too. When you got your own account, did you find yourself at first doing the same things that you had learned from the traders that were day traders at the time? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you never completely reinvent the wheel. You take a lot. But like, so I, I'd worked for Jay Thielen, I'm pretty sure it was his name, and Eric Schmidt. And then I worked for Brian Nelson and Jay Kopfer and Noah. And there were a bunch of other people there that I actually clerked for at Breakwater. So I had worked for like a dozen different people by the time I got my own account. And I tried to just take little bits and pieces from everyone. And then I also tried to take more risk than I was allowed to take as a clerk. And I actually, I was fortunate to hit the ground running right away. Like I, I was so eager to have my own account because I had all these things I really wanted to do. And trades that I thought we weren't making enough on, but like, you know, Nelly would say, do this contract fly five by three. And I'm like, we should do it 50 by 30. Like it, it makes money every morning at 6am. Like, what are we doing here? Yeah. If it works, it works. And that that's really kind of why for the trading portion, I wanted to talk to you about, because I think that you were a really good risk manager because um, you traded differently than a lot of people and you traded big on the things that were working and 
I think that you were someone that really like pushed things that were working in a way that other people weren't. Is that fair? I think I I think that's fair. Thank you. I always felt that the short term nature of trading was always very in the front of my mind. Like no trades work for you know. Like remember in two thousand nine or whatever when we could front run the Fed every morning at ten a.m. or something for like three months. Like there yeah. was a. And, and, you know, that's the way it works for like a little bit of time. You find this thing, like they're always going to buy long dated maturities, uh, treasuries at, at this one time of day. And like you find this little thing that you can do for a little bit and then, and then it's over. And so, and you never know when your last day of trading is. And, and you just, there, there was always like a sense of urgency. Like we have to just make as much as we can right now before this opportunity goes away. That was something that I really struggled with. And I wish I think part of it is that when I came on in 2009 as a night guy, I think things were going exceptionally well and only getting better. And I think that I was too complacent with the attitude of sort of, you know, this is great and it'll presumably stay great. Uh, which is, so um, just as a caveat for our listeners, because the people that listen to this, a lot of them are sort of like retail futures traders. And the one thing I'll put out there, the reason I mentioned that Adam actually was looking at his risk is I don't think it's necessarily good advice to uh, <laughs> overextend your risk limits, especially if you're in our program. I wouldn't do that. But um, I think what you can't take away from that is you do things only work for a finite amount of time. And as we go through this story here of Adam and I's experience at uh, Chopper DRW, that's really like a classic story of that. And um, if you have something that works, you need to push it while it's working and then kind of adapt and form something else because it's always going to get harder. You know, your first year is always the easiest. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say your first year is always the easiest, but it's always going to change. You right. know, some things are going to get easier and some things are going to get harder. And, and yeah, you just gotta, you gotta know that going in and accept it. And, and what that means is, you know, if you find something that works, you have to make as much as you can on it because you don't know how much experimentation you're going to need until you can find the next thing. Yeah. So when I met Adam, Adam had already, uh, was in his own group that was adjacent to us. So I started working for the same people that he came over with. And, um, you were doing very well at the time because we did have certain public facing things and you were trading in a very different way. What were you doing to measure your risk essentially? Like when, when did you know it was time to like puke? <laughs> Cause that's what I always worry um, about. I know, I know that your style, you took, you know, you took some bigger losses on the pukes obviously, but um, obviously when you trade that size, you, you still couldn't just, you know, hold it indefinitely. No. So um, I, I would say honestly that when you're, when you're trading very large volume, it's very mentally taxing because any position could be one of your last, you know, if things go really, really badly. Um, so you have to be hyper vigilant. And I, I, you know, we've talked about how I'm no longer in trading. I may return to it one day, who knows, but like the, there are things that I loved a lot about trading. I loved a lot about it, but what I didn't love was sort of what you're talking about. The fact that you have to be hyper vigilant when you have a large position on and the the stress of it like it's very hard to relax when you have a large position yeah. so but like how do you deal with it you just you watch it very carefully you set markers in advance like everyone makes poor decisions under pressure 
So the key is to make your decisions in advance when you're not under pressure. And then you're just executing the plan that you created for yourself when the time comes. And so you say either, you know, sometimes it's a geopolitical thing, like if this many more counties come in for Trump, then I'm going to change, I'm going to exit this trade or something. Or sometimes it's uh, just a, a number that you hit. It's the risk number. Like if this goes over whatever, then I'm going to dump. And so you set, you set those plans in advance um, and you try to minimize as much as you can the execution cost when getting out because it gets expensive when you have a large position on. And, um, and that's all you can do. And if you find that you're losing more money on the, the big losers than you're making on the, the winners, then it's a bad trade and you shouldn't be doing any of it at all. And, and if you've managed your, and you've managed your risk, if, if you can survive a loss and then go on to the next trade and it doesn't kill you, you know, that's, I don't know, that's probably not helpful because it's, no, that's obvious. definitely helpful. Like just to give some context and sorry, I've been drinking LaCroix. So now I have to burp. And you know what? They can Go leave that it. in there because it's real time. No, oh, we'll I, edit I, this all in post. We have <laughs> you got like a, a team of 20 editors, right? Yeah, something like that. Uh, yeah, we're re- regular like uh, NBC over here. Um, but like to put a little context in it, what might be different than some of the people who are just, uh, you know, trading futures. Those positions are relatively easy to get in and out of. Um, generally, what Adam and I were trading and Adam to a much larger size were these flies where it was essentially two spreads hedging each other. And then on top of that, so there was three different positions you were in for a lot of the things you're doing. And there was a lot of slippage of getting out of those. So the decision to puke was very painful and it became very easy to like start hope trading or it wasn't even revenge trading. It was just like (laughs) praying to whatever God you pray to that this would suddenly get better. Well, it's it's that classic Amos and Tversky and Daniel Kahneman risk aversion study. Like people become um, risk seeking when they're, they're trying to avoid a loss. Oh yeah. And so you, yeah, you want to, when you realize that you're down, you, you want to roll the dice even more. And that's definitely something that you have to be aware of in yourself and guard against. Absolutely. You know, it's it's much harder to hold your winners and let those run. And it's much easier to keep doubling down and let your losers run. I think, I think actually that was one thing that I did better than some other, like I, I often, and sometimes it costs me a lot because lots of times people would, would take money on their winners and then the trade would go right back and they put it back on again and get flips. I held things a lot at a time, a lot longer than anybody else. But it depends on the, the trade you're in. It depends on the market you're in. It depends on you know a million things. Yeah. Well, to go what you're talking about too, about the hypervigilance too, is that I, where I was connecting with the sort of things you're trading was that you'd often, you'd have positions on for days and days and days that were kind of, it was like turning a ship sort of. And I do encourage, because that's, that's kind of what, really burnt me out too is just the overnight not being able to go home and sleep you get a call whenever and you just always have something on you know even in the weekend you go into the weekend you have stuff on uh it just became difficult to enjoy other things is kind of my experience especially towards the end there was a period where you know things were going really well and then as adam was talking about earlier a lot of edge disappeared in some things you know it always does. And it just made it harder to do that. So uh, some people, like I remember, uh, you know, KC was incredible at... <laughs> I remember him. I mean, oh, yeah. 
he, he was at my wedding. He's the only one that I see occasionally. I, I haven't <laughs> talked to him. And, um, but he was incredible, A, at trading outrights, which I'd yeah. love to have him on sometime to talk about how he does that because that's sort of like a je ne sais quoi. Like, I don't know how he does it. No one does. That's an interview I would listen to. And none of us would get anything out of it, but it would be very entertaining. Well, that's the thing. I'll tell everyone out there the reason that you can't. And Dan, I see you're back. You want to hop in? I'm here. Okay. He, Dan's been. Are you okay, uh, Dan? We're, we're hanging in. Tech Technology's failing me. Um, markets are. I mean, this is the this is the fun part about our job. I mean, I'm engaged yeah. in the market 24-7 and trying to also do other work. It becomes a lot. Um, so I think I'm back. I think everything is Well, as we okay. talk right now, uh, S&P is down like 125 points. So Dan had to go do some uh, damage control on a few things. Um, but what we were talking about, and I will reach out and try and get KC on the show, is that what Adam said, we could listen to a whole interview with him and it would be difficult. I sat next to him for four years uh, <laughs> with with his P&L on my monitor <laughs> and could not figure out what the hell he was doing that was working with these outrights. Um, but he did have, I think it's from his poker career and everything else, that hypervigilance that it's very difficult to sit for 10, 12 hours and just be like dialed in. And he could do that. And I feel like a lot of people can't. You were pretty it's good really at that. It's really hard though, to Adam. do. Yeah. I I actually took a an online assessment recently that told me I was like 99th percentile in ability to focus. Nice. So all the, uh, these other people applying for this job at a consulting firm. Anyway, yeah, like you you got to really you got to concentrate on it. But it's for me the the thing I loved so much about trading was the competitive aspect of it. Like money's nice. You spend money, I exchange it for goods and services. But the the best part is when you've got a bunch of other people that are all trying to play this trading game with you and you can see some of their P&Ls and you know, like, I'm doing better than this person, worse than this person. What are they doing? I can learn from them. I can pass them here. I can be like that. That was the thing that just it didn't it wasn't hard to focus when I was trying to win this contest. You were I, you were always very competitive in those, uh, you know, monthly trader of the month things or flag football or whatever. You are someone that <laughs> does, like, does not like I remember to lose. once I broke a ping pong paddle. Yeah. <laughs> and honestly, compared to most people there, you weren't, uh, I would say, a hothead. Although that's sort of like uh, damning with faint praise because there were some real yeah. hotheads in that office. No, I, I always thought that was the stupid, like, like, like a lot of people would break things. I think just, I think the people that broke things the most, many of them were trying to convince themselves and others that they did care. Like, I think many of them wanted to not be traders anymore and they just didn't care. And they felt like that that was wrong inside of them. And so they're like, I'm going to break this phone now that this hasn't worked out. Yeah, no, I get what you're saying. It's, it's like a sort of, uh, uh, what would be like boastful display of like passion that yes, yes. I, I don't have passion versus in the heart in heart, but I can take a back scratcher and break this screen with it, right? Which I've seen, and it's sort of this faux display of oh, I do care. Look, look at what I just did. That was silly. Yeah, yeah. But no, like when I lost money, I, I actually I wasn't angry. I was always just like sad. Like I wanted to crawl in the field <laughs> position under the desk. I forgot that was about the thing. this. That was the predominant emotion. I think we did that a couple times. Yeah. Like as a group. <laughs> I was such a mope. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I was, I was losing sulk away and just like disappear for some period. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it hurts like not, not losing money 
is the best part of not trading. Like making money is really, really great. And like I said, I, I, I loved so much about trading. I will be surprised if I don't trade on my own later. I've been really, really busy lately because I have three kids now and I'm going to school. And you gained two <laughs> since, since yeah, last I we talked. Yeah, I know. I don't, I don't know where they keep coming from. And it's... <laughs> Just take them off the street. Like, I, I, I honestly, this is not a, a parenting podcast, but like every day is a death march. I couldn't possibly take on <laughs> trading right now. Like, I'm serious. Like, I just, it's just like, is everyone still alive? Okay, let's go to bed and try to do it again tomorrow. But like... And when the kids get older and when things in my life are more settled, 100% I'm going to trade again because I, I miss so much of it. But the not losing money part is really great because it, it's such a painful experience and you know you never get over that. And if you do get over it, you should get out of trading because it's got to hurt or else you won't improve. Like The, the pain of, of knowing you did something wrong is what spurs you to reevaluate and learn from your mistakes and, and improve. So you just made a really, really profound point that I think people struggle to understand a lot of times trading. You have to be a hundred percent there. You're just talking, you got three kids, you got a lot going on. Like it's just not a feasible career path (laughs) to try and go down at this stage in your life. And I think a lot of people get into it and their initial instinct is, okay, I can trade for one or two hours in the morning and I can still do everything else in my life. And maybe you can get away with that one or two hours, but all the other work that goes into actually being successful at this doesn't matter how little you trade, but the amount of work that you have to put in to be successful, to make that money and to keep growing that account balance, that's where that's where the real work comes in. And if you're not 100% committed to that part, you're going to struggle. Honestly, and for me, it's, you know, I don't have a family. I'm, I'm married now. I wasn't at the time, even when I was just a single, you know, F boy or whatever they call it, just just like yeah. you know, in, yeah, something like that. Uh, even when I was just a single 24, 25 year old guy, nothing hurt, and this really didn't happen as much uh, earlier in the career, but later at Chopper than you know, busting your ass um, for like a month and being in a worse shape financially uh, at the end of it. Doing a whole month of work and losing money is a hard pill to swallow, and. I can't imagine doing it like ultimately, yeah, I'd be fine, you know, eating scraps <laughs> and do it to myself. But if I had a family, I don't think I'd be able to go and go to them and be like, hey, you know, I was gone all day this <laughs> month and uh, we need to sell the car. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the uncertainty of it, too. That was actually that was the number one reason of a litany of reasons for why I resigned from DRW. But the number one reason was. Working and trading feels like you're you're building your house out of sand. Like you can build very fast and you can make some really cool things in a hurry. But you never know if the wave is going to come in or not, or you never know what's going to happen. And I felt like it's irresponsible of me as a, a father to try to support a family relying only on my ability to trade. Like I, I needed to go back to school personally so that I knew I could have other skills to fall back on. And that's why, like, if I go back to trading, it'll be with the knowledge that if it doesn't work out, that's okay. I, I needed to know that it could fail and that would be okay. Well, this might uh, not apply to everyone out there who might have other careers and then, then they're getting in the trading. Um, but that was one thing. Yeah, you that can just realization... edit all that out. Just cut that oh, no, no. <laughs> no, I think this is absolutely truthful. I think it's a different thing where I, I don't think a lot of our people are people that work full time in 
um, prop shops for years. But it was always, even when I got the job, I was thinking, you know, I'm going to try and make a bunch of money and then uh, I'm going to do something else. I'll go to school. Because one of the things I realized when you leave it is that you kind of have to build things. If you don't want to go into fixed income trading, you have a ton of knowledge about fixed income trading, for instance. I didn't even have a ton of knowledge about, say, retail trading, which they're, you know, they're doing now. I didn't know other products. I didn't know sort of the lingo as far as that. So I felt the same way where it's like, I have to go do something else right now for at least a while. And I still, I still trade on my own time and do stuff like that. But, uh, I'm the same thing where we can get to the next thing. Cause you just made such a lovely, uh, metaphor there. Um, I think it'd be really interesting to talk about what you've done post-trading, um, <laughs> starting with something that kind of took me aback like a few years ago when I saw what you were doing. Uh, how long had you been working on a novel? Well, working on is a weird, like, you know, is, is working on it when you're thinking about it, when you're just walking to the store, is working on when you're actually sitting there typing. I want to hear about when you learn to read. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wherever you want to start is fine. Adam. I mean, so, like, speaking of Chopper, I remember, you know, trading is, it has long periods of boredom. I still watch a lot of movies when the markets are slow and nothing's going on. And after watching some movie, I don't remember what it was. I go back to the break room with Noah and Daniel Ladin are there. And I'm talking about how bad this movie I just saw was. And Dan says, yeah, like you could do better. And I said, yeah, I could do better. I could write a book that would be much better than this. <laughs> this is classic. This is true. I, 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 this no, goes I totally to that believe challenge, it. that competitive side. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe that, that really speaks to that. So, but it was, it was something that I like movies. Competition is a passion of mine, but storytelling is also a real passion of mine. Um, I just love everything about movies. <laughs> So I was going to write a movie and I thought, I don't know anyone in Hollywood. I can't possibly hope to ever get that made into something. But what I could do is write a book. Even though I'm not the biggest reader, don't tell that to the people commenting on my Goodreads page. I'm actually not a, a particularly avid reader. But I, there, there were a lot of things that I'd been thinking about. There were elements of story that I wanted to tell. There were parts of stories I wanted to steal from movies that I loved. I was like, I love this scene in this movie. And I think about it. I was like, here's why because of the, the way we're calling back to something that was brought up in the first scene, but without alluding to it directly, we're forcing us to like draw this connection. I was like, I want to create a story that forces readers to draw connections between things. And then that's the real joy of, of storytelling. And um, so I, there were these things I had been thinking about, and it was also influenced a lot by the people I'd met in trading. And at that time, when I left DRW in 2016, Trump was had won the Republican nomination and was in this position of prominence and people didn't know if he was going to win the election or not. And I was just so, you can edit this out for sure if you want. I was so disgusted by this, this con artist that I couldn't not write about it. Oh, it's fine. So, Adam, you can say whatever you want. I just have to be a blank slate. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so I guess what I'm trying to say is there, there are a million things. Like I wanted to write a story. I wanted to talk about the current political climate. Um, I wanted to prove Daniel Ladin wrong. And <laughs> That's, that, that last one is a powerful, powerful urge. <laughs> yeah. And all of it together, I, it, was, it was something I really wanted to do. And to be honest, there's, there's something so intoxicating about the immortality of it. You know, like three generations from now, my grandkids 
are going to one day, one Tuesday, they're going to be bored. They're going to say, I wonder who my ancestors were. They're going to Google my name. And what's going to come up is this book. Like this book is going to survive me. And it's so much fun for me to say, for someone to come to me and say, well, what do you think about this? And I'm like, I wrote it down. It's right there. You want to know what I think? There it is. And when I'm gone, it's still going to be there. And there's something, yeah, just soul enriching about that. No, I, I love that. That's why I wish that The Onion had bylines because uh, <laughs> when, when, when I die, they'll just remove me from the masthead unceremoniously. <laughs> and uh, that'll be the last anyone hears of me. <laughs> I'll know what you contributed. Thank you. Thank you very much, Adam. Um, yeah, so the book's called Athena's Choice. I was actually reading over uh, the plot synopsis. I'm going to read this now. I really am. I was thinking the same thing after I kind of read through the quick bio. I was like, this just sounds sounds very interesting. It's like it's like you knew something wild was going to happen in 2020 and just lead to this crazy world 70, 80 years later. <laughs> That's <laughs> all that I could think about was like, is that where 2020 is headed right now? I, I wanted to add, Adam, um, I took a note on that. It's, it's, it's well reviewed. Uh, I think you it, said it's it, won multiple national literary awards. Yeah. And th- did it, it got to the top 100? I'm just say, saying what uh, you said it got yes. to the top 100 in Amazon? Briefly. Yeah. You it know, was, briefly it was back counts. in November. Here's the best part it was uh, a couple spots away from Donald Trump Jr.'s book in the top 100 on Amazon. So I thought that was hilarious. But Perfect. Anyway. <laughs> I, I, there's one thing I had to point out, though, and I, I'm going to take down this one uh less than stellar review because i thought oh. the first the first line of it was so funny many uh, this, of the bad reviews are very good this, this person starts off and you want to talk about some real shallow literary criticism here i thought the writing was superb with little to no typos <laughs> and and they spelled superb wrong <laughs> it's it just like it was a piece of comedy i just had to point that out because that really stood out to me <laughs> yeah I actually, most of the, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this as an author, but like most of the one-star reviews on my book are terribly written. I would, I, would, I would imagine that on any piece of media, most of the one-star reviews are terribly <laughs> written because it's probably usually, you know, unless something deeply, there's very few things that could offend me enough to go out to write a one-star review about something. I, I talk a lot about a lot of gender issues, so I get I get a lot of one and two star reviews saying you can't say men are like this and women are like that. That's wrong. Yeah, well, you, when you drift into that territory, people have strong opinions all over. So yes, yes, they do. So that's awesome. I stand by what's in the book. Okay. I mean what I said. There it is. <laughs> I, I I would totally believe that. I wouldn't imagine you would put something out without <laughs> standing by it. You See, know, that's the best. That's the best part about it. Like. I think I could have written the book differently if the goal were to sell as many copies as possible. Like it did pretty well, you know, for a small indie book, but like, because I wasn't trying to do that because I, I was free to just write whatever I wanted. That's the best part. <laughs> yeah. So, um, after that you're doing the business school thing. I saw that you're involved with some startup stuff as well. What's the, uh, st- what, what's uh, going on with that? Just, uh, um, why well, Co-founded a company with some some classmates at Berkeley. It's a reusable logistics company. And basically, it just partners with restaurants so that you can get takeout food in reusable containers so that you don't have to have so much trash every time you eat takeout. Simple concept. I actually, I just recently left that company for personal reasons. But 
No problem. I, you know, I, I, you're really painting a picture there, um, with the, uh, you know, Berkeley reusable logistics. It's so Berkeley. Yeah. You're, 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 Berkeley. Right. You're painting a big old uh, target on your head for one star reviews. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Go ahead. Bring, I, I, they can't hurt me anymore. It was, it was funny. The first couple I got, I took it really personally. And then I'm happy to say that now with 500 reviews or something out there, you can leave a bad one. I don't care. It, it is incredible. The, uh, the comments you'll get. I, I used to work for a video production company that would do some originals and stuff like that. And there would just be people around that a video that had nothing to do with anything. And someone will post, uh, I can't, I can't even say what it is, but it involved uh, several <laughs> racial epithets, yeah, which oh yeah. Th- d- d- didn't even apply to the video in any way. And I've seen the YouTube comment section. I know. Sadly, you know, shockingly, like for Top Step, we don't get super bad trolls. Our trolls are usually spammy, but no one's really. Uh, what do you think, Dan? No one's really going for the throat that much. There was that one guy who wanted to teach you how to trade. <laughs> Dan's though. thinking a lot. Dan's really I've good been with this. the I've been with the company a little longer than Jack. Uh, <laughs> um, we we've we've had some in the past, um, but truthfully, if you, I really look at it, I think our our track record stands. You know, can tout any bad review against us, but we we've had some good ones in the past, and. Uh, even before I was here, I was looking at some of them, and uh, there, there were some strong words against. But I think, like I said, I think our our history says otherwise against most of this stuff. I think people just you get trading. Trading's emotional, and like you're a lot of new traders or inexperienced traders, maybe they're always looking to create the escape somewhere else or push that blame off on someone else. You don't become successful at this until you kind of accept your own faults. And say, all right, I screwed up there. I I take ownership for taking that loss, and that's when you can start to actually be a little successful here, or not here, just trading in general. You can start to be successful if you get to those points. I want to say two things. One, I looked at the reviews for Limit Up before I came on here, and Daniel, being modest, they're overwhelmingly positive. <laughs> and two, um, I couldn't agree more with what you just said. Like. The, the people that I knew at Chopper that would put the blame when they lost money and they would say, oh, it was because this random event occurred and nothing could be done about it. Like those are the guys that never made money ever. And the people who, who said, this was my fault. I didn't see this coming. I didn't plan for this contingency. I didn't have this emergency out in place. I didn't like those are the people that were good traders. I could not agree more with yeah, that. Yeah, the bad beats people. And honestly, uh, despite in part because it's maybe, you know, not super financial. Trading is kind of a different thing. I mean, the trading community overall, I find to be pretty positive, at least, you know, at, at, at Chopper, I would say I liked the overwhelming majority of the people, which is more than I would say put me in a normal group of people. Um, I feel like I would like less of them on average, perhaps. I, yeah. I, I mean, I talk about things that are not politically correct to say, but yeah, I, I would... Um, cause I, I, what I mean is misanthropic and I don't mean that racially or misogynistically. I mean, I just don't like most people in general, but, but like, um, I, yeah, I, I, there were many, many traders that I liked and there, many of them are interesting, thoughtful people who are very emotionally aware, which is something you wouldn't suspect. Like it's not something that you think about when you think of traders. Yeah. There's, you know, and it, as I said, I haven't 
you know, the pr- pretty much the only person uh, that I know, and maybe we'll get him on here at some point because he does a newsletter or something like that, that really makes a thing to reach out occasionally is um, Jake Weber. And Jake Weber's. Oh, one I remember of Jake. Yeah. Uh, if he's in town, he's just travel. He's been traveling the world for a few years, just writing some uh, newsletter for stuff. But he's every time he's in town, he'll uh, like that's the only time that I'll see any of the old people. And he's just such a nice, genuine guy. Yes, absolutely. A perfect example. Yeah. Let me ask you that. When you leave a major prop firm and you go and start trading on your own, how much changed? Uh, a lot. I mean, a lot changes. Like just throwing out the obvious, the, the enormous resources of the firm, you know, you, you miss them. They're very expensive. And uh, you think that you can, you know, do better without them. And maybe I could have, like, I wasn't, my heart just wasn't in it. Like I really just wanted to write the book and I only had so much emotional energy for like, like you said before, like when you're thinking about trading, you got to think about it all the time. And if you're not thinking about it all the time, it's very hard to be an effectual trader, but yeah, you miss, you miss the resources of, of all these people telling you about every calendar event of all the market analysis that you get of all the other people in the shop. A lot of it is, is just sort of the, the work from home phenomenon that everyone has become so familiar with these past few months. But like when you're working on a trading floor and you got a hundred other people all tuned in to the exact same thing, it's just a totally different experience, a different feel, a different mindset than if you're sitting alone in your basement and like, you know, the number comes out and you don't hear like, like when I, I, I mean, non-farm payroll numbers tend not to move the market as much as they used to, but like when a, a payroll number came out, on the floor of chopper trading and you just hear a thousand machines making noises at once and people screaming and like, I mean, the excitement is that was intoxicating. Yeah, it was, it was, that's a day you don't get to take a a sick day. There's no vacation time on unemployment Friday. Right. Those are the days hundred percent have to be there. Yeah. And then when you do that same thing at home in your basement alone and it's silence, (laughs) Yeah, like, what is what is going on? You're, here? Just, you're just yelling "ring a dang" into the ether. <laughs> yeah, and then right. You, get, you throw back. on uh, you throw on YouTube sounds of the pit. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It, it would sound like a you know like a slot machine floor because uh, the fill things or whatever going off just all over the place. And some people would be doing great. Some people wouldn't, depending on what was going on. Um, yeah, it was great. So, um, so, so yeah, I would say I'd say that's by far the biggest thing, which is. It's not like you can replicate a lot of the resources, but you can't replicate, you know, like being at a baseball game versus watching one alone at home and on TV. Right. And I would just even for my end, one thing I experienced was this P&L swings going from a prop firm to trading my own money. I got used to like my watching my P&L swings and like my ups and downs in a prop firm and they weren't that bad, you know, yeah. bigger numbers. And then all of a sudden it's, I'm trading my own money. I'm trading a little bit smaller and I'm like, Wait a second, I can't lose that much right now. It's uh that became like my biggest issue was like accepting the PL swings. That one took me a while to get used yeah. to on my own. Yeah. Yeah, it's like uh when you're driving on the highway and then you need to drive in a school zone again. That's my biggest explanation to every single person. I say that one all the time. <laughs> you go from a school zone to a highway, it's a whole change of pace. Everything changes. Yeah, and I'm on, you know, the prop firm thing was like, I'm down X, but you know what? I'm only on the hook for 40% of that, 30% of that. <laughs> so it's a stupid, everyone who's listening, that's a stupid, stupid, silly way to think about things, but uh, it happened. 
Um, yeah. So, w- what are you uh, looking to do next until you get back in the trading? You s- mentioned that maybe you're looking to do some consulting or something. Um, so, yeah, I've been going to business school at Berkeley, and like I said, the the number one thing that I want is a job where I know that I will be able to get hired doing a bunch of different things in perpetuity, if need be. Like I, as as the breadwinner for my family, I need to know that I can have a job I can fall back on. And that's, that's the real sad part about trading. Like it's, you know, it's, it's a wonderful community and it's so much fun, but it's not valued highly by employers outside of trading. Like you go to other companies and they say, well, I, I don't know anything about this. And it's like, my skills are relatable. I proved myself here. Like, doesn't that mean anything? They're like, no. Yeah. So, so what's, you know, what's appealing to me about consulting? I may go into consulting. There are a lot of tech jobs. So I'm actually interviewing with Amazon next week for three hours. So I'm going to get some stable job and then work in that for five or 10 years and then see where I am and how I feel. And, uh, and yeah, I'm certainly, I would not rule trading out, but it's not what I need to do right now as a father. Yeah. I think that's a, that's definitely a, good way to look at it. It's all about, you know, you need to have some skills outside of trading just to, you'll lose your mind. I feel otherwise, you know, I just, I, I would feel too defensive and not be able to take losses and all That's why that. I take so many vacations every year. Yeah. And I take countless yeah. vacations because of the stress on it. And yeah. I mean, I burned through vacation time. I'm traveling as much as humanly possible. And it's the only way to somehow maintain that stress level throughout all of this. I mean, and for me, I grew up in it. My dad was a trader on the floor and they used to take bets on the over under of how many vacation days my dad was going to take <laughs> in the pits. And they used to laugh and he would chuckle. And then when he retired and um, he walked away, he was the first trader his clearing firm ever had that never had a losing month. And he was with them for over 30 years. Nice. And it's like, okay, so his 100 days of vacation every year really paid off. And now that's something that stuck with me. It was always his thing was take that vacation time. Absolutely. So uh, as we uh, start concluding here, Adam, uh, you mentioned we don't have to have a long discussion, but I think it's relevant as, you know, the markets are down now. Looks stabilized. We got the ES futures down 130. Little day stabilized is a loose term here. It keeps <laughs> swinging all over the place. You just happen to look at the same prices. I'm paying attention to the interview, please. Uh, <laughs> but you, you mentioned you're interested by, by bubbles in general. Um, ha, has the recent movement has that enticed you at all to throw on anything? Or um, so most of my post trading investing hasn't been trading; it's been investing. So I. I, I've taken the Warren Buffett approach, which is like, just find something you know really well and you love and put money in that and then go, go away. Yeah. Which is not trading. Oh, <laughs> but, no. I, um, I keep a firewall between my accounts. I most 90% of what I have is very boring. Yeah. In terms of like, I don't know. I, I like I said, I haven't been following the markets closely enough. I took some money out of. Uh, a long-term thing and put into a short-term thing because I thought I might want to trade like, because it, it sounded really exciting. But then, like I said, between um, school and recruiting and kids, uh, I don't have the, the mental energy, but, and I'm not going to make stock picks here, but there are a couple things I saw like the market 
and I've said this before today, the market, and everyone's been saying this, the market is stupidly frothy in many places. And there were a couple of things I was like, I should maybe short this, but then I didn't. And I, I will be surprised if, maybe if I get a job locked up and then I'm just sort of waiting around for it to start next spring, I might, we'll see. All right. Well, Adam, uh, thank you so much for stopping by. It's been nice hearing about, you know, the last five years and everything else. Yeah. Thanks for reaching out. Are you still in Chicago? I am. Uh, yeah, I am still in Chicago. And uh, yeah, I live in Bucktown. So if you're ever back into Chicago, because you're from around here, right? I grew up there. Yeah. 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 So I, yeah. Moving away felt like a betrayal, to be honest. But I was like, I got to get out. Of, I, I can't do this freezing rain in May. This is I'm done with this. <laughs> Snow in January and February, I was fine with. But when it just would never warm up, that was the thing where I drew the line. But hilariously, um, you know, it's like, kill yourself if you go outside because of smoke inhalation in California now. Oh, so yeah. You guys got the last laugh. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, if you're ever back in Chicago, uh, give me a call or an email or something. I'll see. We'll uh, yeah, we'll I'll do. see if I can get KC there, too. Um, yes. <laughs> and we'll learn. All right, everyone. Well, uh, Adam, thanks again. And we'll talk to everybody else right after this sound effect. Uh, sipping some water because I am recording the conclusion statements of the Limit Up podcast presented by Top Step Trader, sort of the closing arguments, if you will. Uh, Dan, hope you get a chance to listen to this interview and see what you missed. Absolutely. Well, it's always fun getting to hear, you know, stories from old prop traders and how they went about it and how different it could have been from someone else's experience sitting, you know, across the hall because I wasn't far from you guys. Um, yeah, we were in the same building. We were same building. I was 16th floor and 21st floor. Yeah. I mean, right next to each other. Right. Um, yeah. So we'll probably get into more of those at some point because it's good to hear from people that just kind of had successful careers in the industry and that's kind of what they did. Absolutely. And I, the parts that I did catch, it was kind of cool to hear him talk about. He kind of, he's gotten away from, you know, the retail trading side of things, the professional trading side of things. But he said, I can't wait for the day that I can get back into this when I have the time to get back into trading. Um, and I think that's, you know, I think a lot of traders have that mentality. They just can't wait to get back into it. Oh, yeah. They step he's away. One of the most competitive people I know. So, um, <laughs> yeah, with that, it's Thursday. So we're almost the weekend. You got to go out if you're in the Northern Hemisphere and in, Enjoy these last couple weeks of decent weather. Uh, do some stuff outdoors because, uh, you know, this winter is going to be uh, difficult, I think, is a good way to describe it. I think you're about spot on. I think we're here in Wisconsin, we're starting to see the leaves change already. Um, so it's it's fast approaching. Well, with that, I'm going to go outside and uh, take a walk myself with the dog. Uh, everyone out there. Hope you have a wonderful weekend. Hope the trades went well this week. Hope the uh, FOMC minutes went well for you yesterday, too. Uh, I'm going to say they left it unchanged, but uh, the market went crazy. Um, <laughs> I think I'm you're predicting that a day there, in advance. <laughs> right on. Um, so, yeah, have a wonderful weekend. Namaste and trade well. The Limit Up podcast is produced by Dante32.
Futures and Forex trading contains substantial risk and is not for every investor. An investor could potentially lose all or more than their initial investment. Risk capital is money that can be lost without jeopardizing one's financial security or lifestyle. Only risk capital should be used for trading, and only those with sufficient risk capital should consider trading. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results.